Before I begin the service, I have three announcements I need to make, uh, and you'll find two of them on your announcement page, uh, but these are announcements I actually need to make, even though I know we don't like to do announcements before worship, it's a distraction, but uh, that's what we need to do. Uh, we have a congregational meeting on January 27th on Wednesday, uh, 7 p.m., uh, the main orders of business are the budget, which That'll be my second announcement, uh, which we'll vote on as a congregation. We'll also have the treasurer report on. Also, Elder David Stevens, his term expires, and he will be up for re-election for another three-year term. Second item is the budget. Just um, one, one thing I wanted to point out, aside from the fact that it's there and you can look at it, um, and the treasurer will report on this, but I just want to be clear about one thing. We brought in 235. We're projecting 254. We're not actually projecting that we'll bring that much, but we are projecting that we'll spend that much. We're going to carry money over from this year, uh, surplus and the money in the bank, to cover a major building expense. So that's going to stand out to you. You're going to ask us about that, so I'm trying to just get ahead of that question. Uh, so uh, that's why that's, that's the way it is. Under the building maintenance, it's much bigger than it was last year. It's uh, going to be 40000 for next year, and we'll report, we'll report on that at the meeting. Um, the third announcement is I have a new pulpit Bible, and I just want the congregation to know about that. Uh, I, my NAS was falling apart, and I, it lasted 10 years. I wanted a new Bible, but I didn't want an NAS, and I asked the elders whether that was all right. Could I preach from my preferred translation? And they said, Sure. Well, as many of you know, I'm, I'm growing a strong preference for the King James, but I'm not going to be using the King James. I thought that might be a little, a little bit much, uh, even though I love it and I love it more and more. I'm reading it as my Bible, my personal reading. Uh, remember that uh, as a minister, what, what, I'm, what I'm really preaching from is the Greek and the Hebrew, at least I should be. And so we're not beholden to any one English translation. The elders said I agree with. I should preacher in the English translation that I feel best re- reflects uh, the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, so not King James, uh, maybe one day, uh, but new King James. I think you'll find that it differs little from whatever version you bring. Uh, I also think the days of the Pew Bible are largely gone anyways. Everybody brings their own preferred translation as it is. So even as I was preaching on the NAS and it was in the, pul- the pews, I don't think that made much difference. People were reading whatever they brought. So uh, that, that is one, uh, one change as well that we will have going forward. Now, with that said, uh, let us begin our worship. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 147, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praise to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. And so let us uh, remain standing and sing praise to our God, hymn number 268.
Please be seated. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us into this place. We recognize that the privileges and the blessings of the new covenant are ours and they are meant to be enjoyed as Christian people. They're meant to be enjoyed in the presence and the gathering of the saints. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a great high priest over the house of God and that in you we have a great high priest. We thank you for the way in which you gather and protect your church and look after her. We praise you that you are the one who is able not only uh, to cause us to be born again, but to bring us safely into heaven and through this dangerous world. Uh, Father, as we look uh, into the future at a very uncertain path that which we have, one which we we fear is filled with uh, dangers uh, and animosities uh, and the hatred of the world, and now it would seem more than ever. Uh, God, we ask you that you would look after us and that you would remind us that you are the author of our days and that you are the one who brings to pass all that comes to pass in the Christian life and indeed all of the world. You are the one who is not only the Lord of the church, but the Lord of the world. And even though uh, those outside of the church will not bow the knee, nevertheless, their lives reflect not their own wills, but yours. And their greatest folly is that they imagine that, uh, that they are the author and the masters of their own lives when they're not. But Father, as we dwell in the church with this recognition that you are the Lord, we pray that we would not be guided by the same folly, but that we would be equipped with faith to acknowledge that you are... Uh, you are in control, which is to say you are the Lord, that every beat our heart takes comes not by our own will, but yours and every breath that we take. And uh, even the things that we imagine are our own decisions or the result of our decisions, we recognize ultimately was simply the working out of your own plan and your own will. Father, perhaps the hardest thing for us to admit, even as believers, is that hardship is in your will. But it is. And yet still we can see that you are working all things for good together uh, for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose Lord, not only do we love you and find in that a testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, saving and leading us, but also we uh, are called. And in, the, in our callings as Christians, uh, we have the, the certainty that you are working out something very great, even an eternal salvation and a salvation which you will soon reveal to all the world. It's a glorious and a hopeful thought. And it is our belief, our firm belief as Christian people. Father, we equally know that the world would do all it can to make us uh, not only devoid of joy, but even to rob us of our profession. And, and, and indeed, we often see the ways in which uh, some have uh, strayed from Christ. Some have, it would seem, fallen into apostasy. God in heaven, we pray that you would hold us fast uh, and that you would enable us to hold fast our confession of you. And that nothing would be able to rob us or shake us free from that. Indeed, that we would enjoy a full assurance of faith. Not wavering, but holding fast, steadfastly. We ask you, O God, that you would save the children in the same way. That we might look forward to days of of bountiful harvest, of professions of faith in this church. As the children are coming of age, we look for their professions. And we look forward to helping them maintain their professions in the context of the church. O God, we pray that you would give the church great zeal and courage and fortitude to face whatever it is you should have for us. Let us be zealous above all that we might gather and that we might praise you. And as we go out from this place as Christian people, might we be zealous again to use the language of Hebrews to hold fast that profession and in everything and in every sense to to let it be known, uh, not by way of pride or parading as the Pharisees did, but simply as a matter of fact 
that we are the light of the world and that we are indeed Christian people. We follow Christ. We are his disciples and he is the Lord of our lives. And so, Father, as we look forward to worshiping you with all these things in mind, looking forward uh, with eagerness to the preaching and to the the Lord's Supper and to uh, even a conversation we might have with our brother afterwards, uh, we pray that you would bless our every our every task as a spiritual endeavor. But then as we close out our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Now saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to look at three passages this morning, uh, and the reality I found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, is that the parallels abound. There are so many passages we might have read, uh, but let me just read these three. Mark chapter 15, uh, verse, verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling a lot for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed. And offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out with it like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. There was also uh, women Looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, and of and Salome, uh, and uh, who who also followed with him, ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Next, I want to read John chapter fourteen, verses one through six. I think verses which take on a new meaning and a new power when you consider all that we've been considering about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk there about going on before us and us joining him there. And as we consider him as our great high priest in heaven who's gone before us to to appear in the presence of God and invites us to draw near and join him there, I think we have a better appreciation for what he's saying here. Though he leaves us, we might go to him. Listen to what he says. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I uh, go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And then, let's see. Oh, uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we have uh, the, the, the clearest reference to the church, uh, but uh, often overlooked is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I'll also read verses 12 through 14, where he refers to our profession being maintained in the context of the church. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son uh, over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Looking on to verse 12. Brethren, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any uh, any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now let us stand in response to God's word in singing the doxology. God from Psalter selection can be found on page 640 of your hymnal, selection 43, Psalm 90. I'll read in the unbolded if you read along in the bolded section. Psalter selection 43, Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as a sheep in the morning. They are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee. Our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is old. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow 
for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein thou hast seen, wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us, yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. And let us uh, stand and sing in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, hymn number 433.
And please be seated. And turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. the word of the Lord. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word. We praise you that uh, through your word you both exhort and teach us. I pray that through the preaching, these two aspects, the teaching and uh, the practice, would come through more clearly to us and that we might see that the Christian life above all is a thing not uh, just to be considered as an ideal, but to be lived as a life. And may you help us uh, to do this by the preaching of the word as a means of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've said uh, last time and at other times that this is one of my favorite passages. Earlier uh, in the prior year, I preached it on its own, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Uh, obviously, I think we understand why that is. Uh, a minister uh, has a certain burden that people would be gathered to hear his preaching otherwise. What's the point? Uh, and so he likes to remind his church of that. Uh, and, and so here we are again. Uh, but it's important for us to recognize in the course of the preaching of the book of Hebrews how we arrived at this point. We have been in the midst of a lengthy and a sustained consideration of the priesthood of Jesus Christ ever since chapter 2. We've been considering and beholding him in his priesthood. Uh, and that wrapped up with this conclusion, verse 18, as we saw last time. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. The, the, the finality of the offering of Christ on the cross not only puts away sin, but it puts away the sacrifices. And now we are to live in light of that for the rest of our days. And so we begin... The exhortation in verse 19. This is where the apostle begins to take all the treasures we have in Christ and applies them to the believer. And this is what the New Testament always does. It never leaves the doctrine hanging and leaves it to us to work it out. It never, uh, as I just prayed, presents the ideal, but doesn't tell us how to live up to the ideal. It always brings the believer into the practical realm. The Christian life is something that is to be lived. I've recently lamented, uh, and this is something I think that will come out even more strongly in the evening sermon. uh, And so, so let this be two sermons on the same subject. That I fear, lamented uh, to one or all of the elders, I can't remember now. That some in the church, I fear, think of the church as a kind of theology club. We come together, I don't know, to, uh, to read our books and to go to our conferences and to discuss our theology and leave it there. As though that's all we are. That isn't right. 
The reality, beloved, and let me stress this as strongly as I can this morning and then again stronger still in the evening, that we are a holy society. Those who are called out of the world to live a life of holiness. And this is something that the practical portions of Scripture remind us of constantly. If we've not brought the theology into the realm of practice, we have no right to claim we believe it. Theology is always practical. Just as Christian living or practice is always theological, you can never divorce these two things. That's what the New Testament constantly sets before us. The practice or the practical portions of Scripture are always grounded upon Christian truths or doctrines rightly understood. And so let us realize, first of all, the balance and then the order. Of course, the doctrine always comes first. It has a logical priority. Which is why the practical portions so often begin in the epistles with the word therefore. Having laid out the teaching and its richness and fullness, therefore, on this basis, I want you to live like this, in light of these saving truths and saving realities. Which is why it is always wrong to begin with ethics or Christian living and to make that the focus of your life or to, for a man to make that the focus of his ministry. That's the kind of thing that leads on to the social gospel when you begin or lead with ethics. The truth is you'll never be able to live the Christian life with any power or effect unless you build upon the rock, which is the truth as it is in Jesus. And so the practical portion always follows upon the doctrine. But at the same time, nothing that is said in this subsequent practical section will be surprising either. Because as a good preacher, in reality, our, our, our apostle here has been applying the truths Along the way, he's been showing us what the teaching must lead to if it, if it is uh, properly understood and taken to heart. And so the reality is that we find as we come to the practical section, uh, 10, 19 to the end of the epistle, we find the same emphasis or emphases that we found earlier on. First, we have, as, as we do uh, in these verses, verses 19 through 25, an emphasis on drawing near and holding fast. Well, we've seen that already in chapters uh, three and four. Uh, But on the other side of that, we have beginning in verse 26, which immediately follows the present portion of scripture, him describing what he has also described already in the epistle, uh, especially in chapter six, but also in chapter three, the danger of apostasy. And we are meant to see these things as twin possibilities always facing the church. Either we will hold fast our profession drawing near to the throne of grace, or we will fall away in apostasy and unbelief. And there really is nothing in between. You're either on the road that leads to life or the broad road that leads to destruction. Let us be clear upon which road we stand. That is, in some, the practical burden of the, the, the epistle to the Hebrews. And so very naturally... That is what comes out here, a repeated emphasis on these things. But let us first see what we have before we see what we must do. And you notice that is exactly how it is presented here. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter, verse 20, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and so on and so forth. He wants you to be clear about what you have, summarizing the teaching of what has come before and setting uh, the exhortation about what we must do in the context of what we possess and what we have in Christ Jesus, our great high priest. There are many things we have here. 
We have boldness first to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Verse 19 stated also as a new and living way that Christ has consecrated or opened for us through the veil that is his flesh. John Calvin says he sets forth the things which have been spiritually accomplished in Christ in typical expressions. In other words, he takes the language of the tabernacle and the high priest and his approach into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God's holiness. And he applies those now to the believers he's been doing throughout. Let us see what we have in Christ. We have what the old priest had only much more so. Access by faith. Not into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, but into heaven itself, the true tabernacle. An access that has been granted by Christ himself in his humanity and his shed blood on the cross. It was for this reason we read that when he breathed his last in Mark chapter 15 uh, and died upon the cross, that the the veil of the temple which separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the outer court was torn in two. Because he was destroying there. The veil or the wall of partition that separated man and God by shedding his blood. He was opening up access into heaven itself. But at the same time, even though uh, we might say that by shedding his blood, he destroys the barrier. uh, We should also recognize in the typical language of the old covenant that the veil represented not merely the barring of entry, but also the means of entry. The way of entry was always through the veil. And Christ's humanity symbolizes this as well, for he declares of himself, as we read earlier, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, but uh, not by me. That's what I have in my notes, but didn't I just read it? But through me, but through me. And so he and his priesthood becomes the way of entry. We enter in no other way than through the veil that is his flesh. And this way of entry is forever open to us. It is not only new in contrast to the old, but living. The old sacrifices barely kept open uh, the veil for one day for one person. But the blood of Christ opens the way into heaven for, for all time. Those who are called. His single sacrifice stands forever as a way of entry. And so long as he lives To make intercession for us in the presence of God. So long will that way remain open to us. The blood of the new covenant stands as an eternal testimony. That those for whom it was shed are invited and granted a place there. And so they will ever praise him as the lamb who was slain. Because the place they enjoy there is thanks to him. We have a way of entry he says. By the blood of Jesus. And through the veil that is his flesh. Looking to his humanity and his priesthood. We also have a high priest over the house of God. Let's see, which verse is that? Verse 21. Here, Jesus Christ, as in chapter 3, is described not merely in his relation to the believer as his high priest, but in his relation to the church as a body of believers. Again, calling to mind the language of chapter 3, where it speaks of him as the head of the house, the builder of the house. He is set over the house we read there as a son and as its head and great high priest. But he is also greater than the house as its builder. And this tells us how the church came into being in the first place. She came into being as a result not of her own doing but his. The church wasn't man's idea but God's idea. The church exists only because he made it so. And only because he desired that she should exist. She came into being as a result of his will and his work. 
And his great interest, as we know from the the high priestly prayer, is that she should be gathered as one body. That they might be one, even as we are one. Holy Father, he says in John chapter 17. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that Christ not only tears the veil in the Holy of Holies, opening up access to heaven, but he destroys the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. By shedding his blood, uh, blood once more, what he is doing is not only redeeming the believers seen as an individual, but he is gathering his church as one body. And so the church must be seen as the practical consequence and the result of his own work and his own shed blood. Obviously, that will uh, that will feed into the exhortation as we come to it. We have thirdly hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 22. Connected with this, we must also include a true heart and a full assurance. All spoken of there as conditions of our approach. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I say again, conditions of our approach, not as conditions for us to meet, but as conditions which have been met for us already by him. We are able, he says, to draw near precisely because we have and enjoy these things. The believer here is described, not exhorted. He is not one who should seek to enjoy these things. He is one who does, at least in principle. Of course, he often loses his sense of them, whether a good conscience or a full assurance. But then it is only for him to realize that they are his already in Christ. To see that is what he has. What Christ, his great high priest, has purchased and given to him freely as one of his sheep for whom he has died. Here is a description of the blessings of the new covenant enjoyed by those who belong to Christ. That is the regenerate believer who enjoys a saving relation to his great high priest. Beyond that, seeing these as four distinct blessings, a true heart, a good conscience, hearts, uh, uh, bodies consecrated, full assurance. We should also realize in describing the state of the regenerate believer, they all belong together and can never be considered apart. All four together describe the manner of our approach into heaven. Our persons are consecrated, sprinkled clean by his blood, washed with a pure water. He has made us clean and made our persons acceptable in the presence of God. And as a consequence of this, we have a real confidence and assurance springing from an inward testimony of the conscience to draw near. We are assured not only as to his salvation, but our participation in it. And so you see these four blessings describe our approach and what it is that makes it possible for a sinner to draw near to God. But we also have something else in the fourth place. We have a faithful God who promises, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The word have here is lacking in this fourth instance, but the thought is the same. We're able to do this because of what we have. What we have is a faithful God. Bold faith and steadfastness in professing our faith is made possible not as faith is considered in itself as a grace or as something which the believer somehow is to produce on his own through his own efforts, but rather as faith rests in the promises and more distinctly as faith rests in the one who promises. John Calvin says, Our faith rests on this foundation that God is true. I cannot put it any better. Or if you think of Father Abraham 
and the faith that he had. He considered not himself old man, uh, though he was, but he considered the God who promises, who contrary to hope, Romans chapter 4, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, that is, he did not consider himself, Already dead since it was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed not in himself, but he believed in God. And as he considered who it was who promised, so he grew in faith and so he was justified. And so he arrived at an assurance of faith. And so he became the father of believers. And so we are called to hold fast, not of ourselves, but only as we consider ourselves and our faith in relation to him who promises. He is faithful. His word is always true as it rests on the power of his own unchangeable nature. Finally. We have an approaching Savior, verse 25. We're told to consider one another, to not forsake the assembling, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Indeed, this too has been an emphasis of the epistle, not merely that Christ has appeared as our great high priest and offered himself to God for us on the cross, but now he appears uh, equally in heaven uh, for us, interceding daily. Beyond that, he is to appear again. And the believer is equally certain as to all three appearings. We saw that in a prior sermon. And all three appearings provide the basis and the motivation for Christian living. We not only live today with the realization that he is in heaven on our behalf, but equally we go forward into tomorrow and to the end of our days with the certainty that very soon he will appear before us all. And the question which the New Testament confronts us with is what will happen when he does? How will he find the church? In what state will he find not only the believer uh, busy? uh, What kind of work will he be doing? But what about his heart as well? And what if, as I'll say at the end of the sermon, he should appear in the hour of worship? Chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ offered... uh, Was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart From sin for salvation. The believers eagerly waiting for him. We have a priest. Or we have an approaching savior. But on the other side of what we have. And we notice uh, this is a passage. Which is primarily that of exhortation. But the exhortation is surrounded by all these descriptors. On the other side of the descriptors. We see the real practical force of these three exhortations. Let us draw near verse 22. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, verse 23, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, verse 24. Three clear exhortations. And it occurs to me that there are two uh, separate ways that we might look at these exhortations and that in presenting them, uh, both of these are present in the author's mind. And the first is, as sins to be avoided, As settled habits that creep in and take over the Christian life, robbing it of its vital power to progress and to attain a real assurance of faith and any real attainments in holiness and Christian joy. Sin which 
cut the believer off from Christ, his great high priest, in real practical ways, robbing him of the many blessings Christ has for him. These are sins which reveal either a lack of faith or at least an almost complete failure to grasp the present realities of Christ's priesthood. An ignorance or at least an unwillingness to really see what it is that we have as believers, as we saw in the first point, and which this is uh, the real practical effect of it all. I haven't even gotten there yet for all that I've said. And which, if not remedied and repented of, will lead the professing believer down the road of apostasy. Sins which indicate uh, to us as professors that we are perilously close to committing the grave sin against which the the apostle warns us, that of apostasy. The first is, and I'm just inverting what he says, the opposite of let us, it is a failure to draw near. It is a life devoid of prayer and worship. John Owen says, the man who does not pray is an atheist, for he says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14. It is a life lived, not within the veil, but outside the veil. It is a life devoid of real, saving, practical communion with God. It is a purely formal relationship with our Redeemer, which the Apostle here is warning, especially the Hebrews against, stop dealing with the types, stop dealing with the forms, begin to deal with the realities. And yet the outward professor is only ever interested in the forms themselves. He is devoid of any inward spiritual life, which is derived only by secret prayer in the presence of the mediator. Go to Jesus, he says, lay hold of him. Number two, a failure to hold fast. That is to say, a failure to maintain our boldness in professing Christ. A wavering as to God and his promises. An unsettled faith in the face of trials and hardship. This indeed is the real essence of apostasy. Those who begin well, but who fall away. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Let me read them again. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In many ways, the test of the Christian life isn't how we begin, but how we end. Let us always beware of the danger of apostasy. But third, something that is often overlooked as part of this equation, but which the author here will not allow us to do, whether in chapter 3 or here again in chapter 10, is a failure or a forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So it is here the corporate element that is being stressed. Seeing our bold approach to the throne and our steadfast adherence to the truth as it is in Christ as occurring in the company of the saints. Not as occurring in isolation, me and Jesus, but as occurring as we gather together as one bodily, as one body. And yet, sadly, some in forsaking this, he says, for whatever reason, and there are no good reasons, given the greater realities that we possess in Christ, neglect all three at once. 
As they begin, he observes, to form this habit of staying home. And that really is the tragedy, isn't it? That the more we accept staying home as the norm, or worshipping from home as it is called today, the more it becomes our settled habit. And the more perilously close we come to committing apostasy. Do you really think that you can make it to heaven on your own? I tell you on the authority of scripture, you cannot. Against all these, he says, Christ, as he stands in heaven as our great high priest, commands us to draw near and to hold fast and to gather out of our mutual concern for one another. And so we must also see these as positive exhortations, each of them telling the believer what he must do, supposing he has rightly grasped what he has in Christ. That is what he possesses in his great high priest. Supposing we are clear about these things, let us draw near, he says. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see what he had, what, what, what the believer has, he says? Well then let us draw near. Christ Jesus who has gone before us in heaven, who daily appears before God for us. Will we not join him there? Christ in shedding his blood and going there for us and before us commands us to join him there. And the manner of our approach must be one not of timidity, but of boldness and assured faith. For nothing less than this, a confidence as to our place there fully, uh, fully comprehends the value of his blood and what he has gained for us. Again, I will note that assurance and faith belong together in the believer. Not apart, but together. Once by faith we comprehend what we have in Jesus, our great high priest. And as I noted in an earlier sermon, the more we make use of our great privilege in drawing near, by faith and by prayer and through worship, the more we pray and enjoy real communion with God, the more we will grow in this assurance For the more frequent our access into heaven, the more we find Christ as he is presented here, not as a hostile force, not as one who turns us away as sinners, but one who invites us in full of mercy, grace and truth. One who says to the believer in my blood, in my wound and in my blood shed for you and sprinkled on the altar is your salvation. And so your place here is made certain by mine. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. Here as in chapter 4 verse 14 through 16, the two things go together and find the same basis. We're not only to draw near, but to hold fast. And in fact, the priority in chapter 4 is holding fast. That comes first. Seeing then what uh, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And only having said that, does he add in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. See these two ideas as going together. Let us maintain our profession, he says, and to see Christ as the apostle and high priest of our profession. Chapter 3, verse 1. For where there is not steadfastness in professing Christ, there is all but a plain admission that he is not really ours and that we do not even pretend to possess him or be possessed by him. 
Yes, but if we know him as our priest, then we will profess him and we will maintain our profession. For the more we behold him in his priesthood, the more naturally we will profess, as with the centurion who beheld him dying on the cross, surely this is the Son of God. This is the only way to maintain your profession, beloved. To see and to keep on seeing the kind of high priest we have in Jesus. Whatever uncertainties we may face in this world, we will remain certain as to this. We have a great high priest in heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. But finally, let us consider one another. He says, let me read those two verses again. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of son, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, I think I could put it very simply, go to church. Don't stay home, but go to church. What he says in effect is, again, what he says in chapter 3, remember your brother. Do not think of your relation to your high priest solely in terms of yourself. Think in terms of all the saints for whom he stands in heaven as their high priest too. And part of that work, as we have seen, is binding each of them individually, not only to himself, but together as one body, the church. The high priestly prayer is a prayer, not merely for one believer, but for all believers at once. And so the Christian faith we discover is to be cultivated and nurtured and maintained in the presence of the saints. And it cannot be otherwise, for Christ has made it so. The church exists not as a human institution, but as a royal priesthood, Peter tells us, made so by the blood of the Lamb. We are to gather at his command. We are to consider how we might stir one another up to good works and love. The church here is seen as the arena in which his salvation is enjoyed. And where true Christian confession is maintained and preserved. And so the church becomes a place of sacred fellowship. Apart from which the Christian can never hope to enjoy Christ and all his saving blessings. Will you find your way to heaven outside of the church? No, you will not. The ability to draw near and maintain our profession as I say, is the task of the church for which Christ has shed his blood and gathered for this sacred purpose. We gather at his command in fulfillment of his will, in recognition of his priesthood. We have a high priest over the house of God. Let us show that we know it is so. Furthermore, and this is the last thing I'll say, if you look at the last phrase, so much the more as you see the day approaching, you will notice the element of eagerness and intensity. There ought to be in each of us, he says, who enjoy such blessings, a growing eagerness, a desire more and more to be gathered and assembled in this place, to come to church. You see, nothing, nothing that we face in this world can diminish this desire, nor can it stand in the way. There is in each of us a growing desire. All the more, he says, as we see the day is approaching. And so this desire is one which is always growing because the day is always drawing nearer. We know Christ is soon to appear. appear. 
And this makes us all the more eager to be gathered with his saints when he does. I've always imagined, I said I would come back to this point. I can't promise you this, but I've always had the sense that when Christ appears again, he would do so while the church was gathered. That the day of the Lord would be on the Lord's day, which is in fact the same phrase in the Greek. Well, I can't promise you that. But I would ask you to imagine that he should appear at the hour of worship and you were found elsewhere. As I said to my children this morning, good luck to you. Do you see that the day is drawing near and it is fast approaching? And that it is nearer now than when we first began? And have you considered what the practical effects of such thoughts are upon your souls and upon your practice? Do you find in yourselves a growing desire to be found here? Or are you beginning to give in to the excuses which the world will present in abundance? And accepting a kind of complacency, which, as I say, the world will never fail to give you. The day is far nearer than when we first began as Christian pilgrims and set out on our journey unto heaven. And the nearer its approach, the greater our desire to be found within the walls, in the presence of the gathered church, worshiping at the command of our great high priest, enjoying all of the blessings which can be found here and only here and nowhere else. Amen. And I would ask you to join me now at the table. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my uh, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives it's it's amazing to me uh, every time I read those verses how all three aspects of Christ's priesthood are comprehended in that single statement and are comprehended in the single meal. He says, I want you to think my blood shed for you as I appeared on earth and uh, was crucified on the cross, offering one sacrifice for sin for all times, for all time. He says, I go to the Father now. I'll never eat. I'll never eat of it again until I come back. Consider him as he is now in heaven Ministering to the saints through this meal, enjoying a spiritual fellowship and communion with their Savior. But also consider him as he will be, as he'll appear again on the last day, gathering his church, uh, not only in principle, but in actual fact. All together, we will be gathered as one body and share one meal with him. Uh, And what a Lord's Supper that will be. As we gather at the table, we ought to think of that every time to consider Jesus Christ and his priesthood and all those aspects. We ought to remember that as an act of communion, that we are bound together with believers, not only in this place, but in every age and in every place. All who are Christ and together with us are seeking to hold fast. And so the communion of the saints is not only expressed here, but our relationship to our savior 
It is a spiritual meal of faith. It is an opportunity not only to grow in faith, but to grow up into a full assurance and to commune with our risen Savior. Uh, In terms of the warning which I am uh, told to offer in our book, I can only say that uh, that is a description of the one who ought to come. Otherwise, you ought not. It's a spiritual meal for spiritual persons. Uh, It's an opportunity, uh, in many ways, to test what is in your heart. Are you disappointed that the the worship goes past the hour? (laughs) Or do you find that you're so happy that you get to be here a little bit longer? I realize that we're not supposed to have long services for long services' sake, and I don't think that we do. Uh, We try very hard to hurry through so as to not detain you too long. But are you glad that Christ should be offered at this table? And do you find real joy in that act? Well, then I say you're not only uh, partaking in faith, but as an act of worship. Otherwise, as I say, I must warn you not to come. For Paul does tell us not to come in an unworthy manner. uh, And if we should do so, then we are inviting judgment upon ourselves. And that includes even believers. Uh, With those words said, let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Not only the words of institution, but the meal itself. It is a spiritual meal for spiritual persons. We are seeking to comprehend things which far transcend our own existence, our own ordinary existence. To to consider and behold Christ as he was slain. To consider him as he now appears in heaven and even as he soon will appear. God, we ask you that you would create in us a real appreciation for these things. A faith which is able to rest in them. Not faith uh, in itself, but faith as it rests in him. And so a growing faith, faith which grows into a full assurance of faith unto the end. And may this blessing be enjoyed by all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And reminder that the outer ring is fine. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now please join me in closing out our worship and singing hymn number 582.
receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.